0: You're listening
1: to the Verso podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Verso Books podcast in association with the London Review Bookshop. We're particularly delighted for this edition also to thank Zed Books for their involvement. My name is Gareth Evans, and I'm very pleased to be hosting a, a podcast special on the life and work of John Berger, who will be 90 on the 5th of November this year, 2016. We have three very special guests who will explore the the full range and influence of this extraordinary writer, artist, filmmaker, dramatist, poet, but most importantly, storyteller uh, on our life and times. And it's, I think, an indication of the importance of John Berger uh, to our culture uh, and his wide and and varied internationalism that I have in front of me five books, and there are two more still to be published this November, that... uh, explore uh, uh, his own writing, celebrate his influence and range. Um, And of course, uh, are publications uh, marking his own recent collections? I'm looking at Confabulations, published by Penguin, his new collection of drawings and writings. I'm also examining Lapwing and Fox, a a series of drawings, uh, texts and correspondence between himself and the artist John Christie. We have The Long White Thread of Words, uh, an edited collection with nearly a hundred poets uh, exploring and marking their tribute to his life and work, published by Smokestack Books. But we're here today to talk about two books in particular: "Landscapes," John Berger on Art, edited by Tom Overton, and this is the second uh, in a diptych, if you like, of inquiries into the uh, writing on art that John has explored and engaged with over nearly seven decades, published by Verso Books. Uh, and the, the sequel, or the companion, rather. To uh, the volume that Tom put out last year called Portraits. And next to that is the wonderful book, a wonderful title as well, A Jar of Wildflowers Essays in Celebration of John Berger, uh, published, as I said earlier, by Zed Books and edited by Yasmin Gunaratnam with uh, close involvement of Amajit Chandan. This is an extraordinary collection that ranges across uh, all borders, creative and territorial, to, to mark John's influence uh, in all sorts of registers and ways, and we'll we'll come on to that in much more detail later. But it's great to be starting with Tom Overton, uh, who, as I mentioned, um, has edited the two books for Verso and is, as well as being John's archivist for the British Library, uh, about to embark on a biography of Berger, the, the first, if you like, proper examination of his life and work and the constant interrelation, of course, between the two. Tom, perhaps you could set the scene for us and give us a sense of how... John's life and work is, is, is being received now in his 90th year.
0: Mm, well, uh, John now looks back uh, to his very young life uh, to think of when he began um, this sense of himself as a storyteller. He It starts when he was doing his military service. He'd been called up, he'd been already at art school in London and uh, training as a painter and it was cut short by him being called up to... To start his military service, and because he'd been been to a, a, a public school, that had an officer's training corps, he, he received a commission as an officer. And then, because he was already an anarchist by that point, he, he turned it down and uh, was sent vindictively off to Ireland, where he was training sort of uh, recruits in physical physical training, PT, whatever that means. I think that's that's what it means, uh, and because they were a lot tougher than he was. He uh, evolved this sort of relationship with them where he would write home on their behalf, uh, sort of embellish stories back to their families, their their girlfriends, their wives, whoever. And this position in relation to the people around him, he looks back as the beginning of himself as a storyteller. Um, and it's been very useful to him to cover all of these very, very many different forms that that storytelling has taken over his life, and of course that is a story he's telling about himself as well, we have to remember, um, but the, the watchword, the, the thing that always went through my head as I was editing those, those two books, Portraits and Landscapes, was something he quotes Picasso saying to his dealer, um, whenever I've had something to say, I've said it in the manner in which I felt it ought to be said, and I think that's a useful way of thinking about all of the different forms that John has used. Um, from essay, which he's famous for, to novels, to poems, to plays, and completely uncategorizable things which are in those two books.
1: Many thanks indeed. It's a, it's a wonderful image to think of John as a PT instructor. Uh, how life and how our own lives would have taken a very different course if if he pursued that as a primary vocation. But thank you for setting the scene. Let's come to your two your two collections, which obviously taken together really do form a major statement by John, of course, and and through your own editing of, of this extraordinary body of work about John's relationship with art, also of course with political struggle and the and the kind of the the crises of our times, because he's an artist himself, he's a writer he's a thinker who refuses to kind of accept the conventional divisions as you've suggested between forms but also between areas of concern. Uh, Would you agree that that's the case?
0: Yeah completely, I mean that was um, that was one of the challenges when (laughs) when Verso asked me to put put together a collection of, of John's writing on art and having to think about the because a conventional essay collection wouldn't have really made sense because that's although he's a, a huge innovator and a very important figure in the history of the essay it's by no means the most interesting thing that he's done the the interest i think is how as i was saying earlier the variety of responses he's taken and so with portraits for instance the idea was to choose well let's instead of that being the focus let's focus on um the artists themselves and use that as a way of structuring it instead but this idea of the the relationship between the form and the, the politics in John's work is, is a, an interesting one clearly and one of the the nice lines that he's quite good with coming out with um I think this is from the the 50s or 60s Is um he's just far from dragging uh, he's been accused of dragging politics into art and uh, for him it was art that dragged him into politics
1: in, in portraits you you chose a structure which made complete sense of course and and made a great argument about the lineage of interest that John has had, from the Chauvet Caves to contemporary artists. In Landscapes, it's more a book about the narratives of art thinking and, and obviously their engagement with the social and political. Uh, a book of ideas, perhaps, of, of groupings of, of thought and concern. And, and of course, many of the names that appear in the book are nothing to do with visual art in the obvious sense that we would take it. So just talk us through a little bit about how Landscapes kind of created its terrain, if you like, because it is obviously a very much a companion to Portrait's but in a way expands the territory of those individuals into a much much more shared domain.
0: Mm. Well, they are very much kind of, as you sort of said earlier on, like pendant pieces. They do fit together. And the one of the things about editing, settling on this idea for the structure of portraits, that there would be responses to individual artists, very broadly conceived, uh, was that obviously then there is... All of this other material that john's written that doesn't fit into that that rubric and um so that the pieces which are more broadly about periods in our history sort of the clarity of the renaissance the moment, moment of cuba and this very crucial pieces for understanding the way that john's thought about thought about the world and thought about art um they needed to find a home but also i was interested in the way that i mean one of the the, the the terms which always goes around with John is, is ways of seeing, because of the, the famous um, book and TV series made collaboratively with Mike. Um, but how did John come to that particular ways, way of seeing, which is so distinctive? And I wanted to kind of also kind of explore the people who had helped him get to that point. So the first section of the book looks at his teachers almost, the people, his collaborators, the people he's learned from. Uh, and the second section looks at him applying that that optic as he's developed it.
1: Thank you. I mean, let's look at the titles of those two sections. I mean, part one is called "Redrawing the Maps," and part two is "Terrain." So, if you like, the maps are are, are reshaped, re uh, categorized, and then we enter a different kind of terrain with them. Perhaps if that's not too direct like a direct linking between the between the sections, but just tease out for us a little bit, if you could, the idea of redrawing the maps because it comes from Another writer who's very closely identified with John.
0: Mm. Yeah, that lines from uh, Jeff Dyer, who's a sort of great disciple of, uh, of John's, uh, and it's from his his um, collection of John's essays, and also from the, the very early sort of book he wrote about him in the '80s. And it also um, was used as the title of a, a free school, um, which in two th- thousand twelve, as part of the celebrations for the 40th anniversary of Ways of Seeing in G. And this sense that, um, Jeff says that rather than, that rather than add John's work to the Canon, uh, what he thinks we should do is, is use it to redraw our map maps of existing literary reputations. And it was with that in mind that I thought that first section could be a sort of a response to that and a kind of a sense of where that came from. Um, as it gives way into the terrain section, um, I think you're right that it is. How does that that redrawn map? How does John apply it um, on this this redrawn landscape of uh, <laughs> of art history?
1: I mean, looking at, at the first section, as I suggested earlier, there's some very surprising names, perhaps, in a collection of art writing. You've got a, an essay by John. The secretary of death reads it back about Gabriel Garcia Marquez. You've got Roland Barthes in there. You've got Joyce. You've got Benjamin, of course. But also at the heart of the of the first section, you have John's essay on Max Raphael's *The Demands of Art*, which is one of the crucial books, clearly for John, in terms of thinking about what art writing can do and how how broadly and deeply and widely it can uh, it can explore uh, the matter of the times, if you like. Could you talk a little bit about this relationship with Raphael and and he's a name really that's not a given by any means to to readers of art history or art criticism now i think
0: no he's one of the he's one of the sort of johns early sort of mentors and that i mean the important thing about uh johns early life really is uh in the 50s in in london is his living among a kind of this milieu of european exiles and refugees from uh, fascism and him developing this kind of broader Broader scope than many of his contemporaries did, and often many of them were, you know, a lot older than him, in a very different life experiences. And uh, Raphael, along with Frederick Antill, as, as well, was one of these figures who, who are sort of art historians of an older, a uh, previous generation, who, whose insights John was applying in a very different way into popular journalism, and. But yeah, Raphael is, is among the figures that John tried to re- rehabilitate, um, because also, I mean, many of these people, as you said, that they're, they're not particularly, I mean, Joyce, Barth, uh, I mean, Barth is an interesting, uh, or, or um, Brecht, there are people that John sort of, along with his collaborators, such as Anya Bostock, brought back into the English, well, brought into the English language in some cases the first time, like Walter Benjamin, for instance, Raphael possibly is one of those examples which hasn't come so so much to the, the the front of the the culture, but John's constantly kind of rediscovering these people and advocating for them. He's a great advocate for other people's work as much as a I mean, in in writers as well as as artists
1: thank you and I mean there's two crucial points that you raised raised there one to do i think with the emigre community in London, and we could obviously devote a whole podcast to to just that, that extraordinary post-war moment when many, many ideas and individuals came together to kind of create a, a new sense of possibility across many different art forms, but also the idea of collaboration. So to take the first, if we could, John himself comes from Lithuanian Jewish origin, coming to the UK through Trieste, a part of that great migration of the earlier part of the 20th century in the late 19th century. But he always found himself much more at ease, I think, didn't he, with that with that cosmopolitan internationalist community, first of all in London, of course, and then in a very significant move when he left London in the late 60s to actually go and live in the heart of Europe. Hmm.
0: Yeah, completely. I think there's a kind of... So there's, there's an atavism there in the sense that he identifies with that as... Uh, you know, he sees something of himself in, in that group of people, but it is also that um, that sense that it, when he moves to Europe, it's because he wants to be a European writer, which of course is an extremely sort of topical thing to be thinking about at the moment. Um, and as you're saying, he's he's in he's in Europe from the 60s to, you know, to the 70s, and, and sort of moves down to the the Alps. But when the it's interesting that. When the archive, when he donates his archive to the British Library in 2008, he, it's it seems like a sort of homecoming because of course he was born here in London, and very much as part of your um, season of uh, here is where we meet in 2005. I think John develops a sense that actually London is is at that point more of a European city than, than it was when he when he left, and that the way that I wonder if he's kind of <laughs> been part of a, of a change in the broadening of. The horizons here, I don't know, but the but yeah there are there are two parts to that story as well there's a kind of like the rejection of um, a certain sort of Englishness in the 50s but then there's the continuing to kind of work at it, I mean he still is engaged with the idea of Englishness like um, Caucus Freedom uh, and the novel and um I mean A Fortunate Man is about a GP in England and it's about kind of like framing his experience within a broader European context and so there's it, there's, I mean, I think it, it's easy to to see this as a complete rejection or kind of like a, an abandonment of uh, of Englishness in favor of that. But I think there's, it's slightly more complicated than that.
1: Absolutely, you know, it, it, it always would be given the kind of richness and complexity of the. Of the project I think. In terms of uh, the other idea that, that emerged the idea of collaboration we can't uh, in any way overlook that can we I mean, there there are collaborations of course with individuals you mentioned Anja Bostock in terms of translation of certain key texts but collaboration is absolutely central not only to how he actually makes work whether in book form or on stage or on, on the screen but also how he thinks fundamentally about being in the world I th- uh, would, would you agree with that?
0: No, absolutely um, I mean there are so many with, with Mike uh, and with, all the way through his life with Nella Bielski, with, um, with Peter de Francia sort of very early on. Um, and I think, and also it's interesting the way he talks about his, I mean, in fact, many of the texts and portraits were also collaborations with John Christie and another, another sort of recent one uh, is um, that's come, come about. And it's a real kind of, it is a real ethos that um, the way that he, he also sort of imagines his relationship to his reader as well. I think he's, he's quite collaborative, and he talks wonderfully about the experience of cinema as being a collaboration between the viewers and the uh, and the uh, the filmmakers. Um, it's yeah, it's a really kind of like all-encompassing term with him.
1: Given this move to Europe, and you know, with all the kind of inherent sort of contradictions and and interests that you suggested, but also with this idea of collaboration, can you? can you notice or or find a significant shift in the way that he writes in in that post uh, london period i mean obviously it's many many decades now um on both sides if you like of the shift but uh he from my perspective he, he's he he makes a major shift into a much more expanded form of writing once he leaves leaves england takes on many different kinds of writing beyond the the essay however radical his own expression of it might have been earlier But is that is that just a if that's if that is the case is is that a a sort of fairly literal expression of this idea that he moves beyond an island culture and an island mentality into a you know a sort of an unbordered continent or or is there something more fundamental going on with how he is thinking uh, aesthetically and politically?
0: Well, I, I mean, very very broadly, the one of the shifts you could you could mark is from the sort of writing he's doing and the sort of painting he's doing in the. In the '50s and to a certain extent the '60s, this kind of, which, the term social realism is, is the one that sort of generally tends to stick. But then, if you look at what he's doing in the through the le- the later '70s into the '80s and '90s and to a certain extent in the present, it's something more like a magical realism that puts him into the context of people like Marquez that you mentioned, who's in landscapes. Uh, that in a book like Here Is Where We Meet, it's about the was the the presences of people in in cities that he he's lived in which wouldn't i mean the earlier kind of social realist john would find that very strange i think but that's as much a kind of i mean that they are sort of european books so that's as much a product of um having this sort of expanded european mindset as having a more even broader than that that you know south american kind of um, outlook as well um i mean that's so that's one of the the broader shifts. But um the there was al- I think he's always had this a willingness to to experiment though. I mean, looking back even at something as early as um a painter of our time, that's a very strange <laughs> a strange novel in its own right. So this this um this willingness to to think um in that sort of way has there's always been the germ of it. But it has I mean and then maybe during the 60s it does get beaten into something which looks more like a more like a a conventional novel uh, which doesn't work so well but then in 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 the 70s in the Into Their Labours trilogy that's um, I mean they already are fairly uncategorizable I mean are they novels are they collections of short stories they have poems sort of sewn all the way through them they respond to to Zola they respond to to Balzac and the the, the sort of like the, the histories that they talk about but they they do so in a in a way that is his his is his really.
1: One of the the crucial elements again that you've raised there, uh, in relation to, for example, the novel Here Is Where We Meet is 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 this understanding and sympathy, solidarity even that he has with the dead, quite literally. The dead are not dead in the conventional sense that we would understand them. They're they're present as you suggested, uh, throughout cities and of course throughout landscapes and community. Now that's something that very much sets him apart from British writing, even the much larger palette, if you like, of English language writing internationally. Now, this idea of the dead is both obviously a, a kind of uh, an emotional relational one, but it's also one about, it seems to me, about keeping in mind, quite literally, and, and keeping present a range of possibilities from the past that might not have been fully examined, explored, or
0: or, or seen through. No, absolutely. I mean, just as you say it in those terms, I think <laughs> I think about whether or not it's present in Joyce in that sense. So like one of his some of his earliest reading, but of course Joyce has this wonderful European perspective as well. But I think that really comes into the foreground uh, when he's writing about peasant culture with its very different attitude to the to the past, as you as you put it. I mean the the Introduction to to portraits. I called the company of the past because this was this this wonderful phrase that he, he used when he described what it meant to him to to think about his own archive, the papers he donated to the British British Library in 2008. That um, that archives for him are a site for this company of the past, rather than being cut off from in the in the way that he he feels that um, that capitalism <laughs> like operates by by doing um that it needs to constantly kind of like separate us from that sort of experience to keep functioning. And and peasant culture has this very different uh there's the sort of peasant cultures that John writes writes about has this very different attitude to, towards the past that that it, it doesn't it's more of a circularity than a kind of a linear flow that is chopped off. And of course the way that um and one coexists with one's ancestors and, and that it's a more kind of seasonal way of living with animals as well. Um, the kind of cycles of their lives has become more and more important as John spent more time in in in, in the Alps uh, among those sorts of communities.
1: This relationship to the land, of course, that kind of extends out of that observation about, about the dead, the coexistence of time, which is expressed, of course, in, in seasonality and in that relationship with the wider community of the earth, shall we say, uh, is interestingly caught, of course, in the cover of, of the book of landscapes that you've edited, because the front cover appears to be and, and is a, a rolling English landscape with uh, a flock of sheep in the sort of middle ground and and uh, crops in the foreground. But, of course, if we turn to the back, we realise that it's uh, the famous painting by Gainsborough, which is all about art and property. Uh, and, in fact, that is the title of one of the key essays in the second section Terrain. So John is obviously very adept and, and very skillful, both in managing uh, multiplicity of ideas within a single text, but also crucially um, going to the heart of the matter when he needs to within this much larger sort of metaphysical landscape.
0: Yeah. Well, the Mr. and Mrs. Andrews, uh, the Gainsborough painting is uh, one of the reasons I thought that would be a good one to use, is because it's it really it forms one of the most memorable moments of, of ways of seeing uh, with Mike. Um, the TV series and book that there's this moment where Mike superimposes uh, a trespassers keep out sign on the tree in the back and it's it becomes this moment partly of, uh, of John in dialogue with um, with art historians of, of the moment about kind of what that picture means and his point that as well as um, as well as them poss- possibly showing the couple kind of enjoying um, unperverted nature, it's also the fact that they can stand there enjoying it because they're not about to be chased off with horsewhips and, and shotguns, that they own the, the land in, in that sense and the picture is designed to to show this off in some sense and the fact that that picture shows, in showing the land, also shows their their position in society because it, it entitles them to, Mr. Andrews anyway, the, to, to vote yeah it gives him his, uh, his his status in that sense as well and i quite liked also the fact that on the front front cover you have the landscape as you turn around uh the cropping of the the spine you could look at the back cover it, it is a portrait as well and so it fulfills both functions and i thought it was a nice way of uh, referring back to to portraits the volume and its sense of uh, the two as, a, as companion pieces
1: it's interesting of course that unlike portraits uh, you don't uh, sequence the pieces chronologically in term of, terms of either theme or, or publication date but towards the end of the second section terrain towards the end of the book you move towards a, a, a very a politicised gathering shall we say of course constantly in dialogue with cultural expression at the same time but you move towards a discussion uh, through John's work around Palestine around the idea of prisons and around the idea of forms of solidarity with the oppressed in a very explicit sense, in, particularly in dialogue with the writer Nazim Hikmet. Now that's obviously an editorial decision you made. It feels absolutely relevant and necessary to the times we find ourselves in. But is that emblematic of of where John's interests and, and energies currently lie?
0: No, completely. I, I mean, the, the sense of his continuing um, commitment uh, is something that definitely felt needed to be brought out and that's visible also towards the end of portraits because the last uh the last piece there is about palestine and as you say this um if maybe one of the if one of the overarching themes of john's entire oeuvre is this sense of exile it's the one that he always identifies um i suppose that is a a situation of that theme in the in the contemporary world um and at the moment we find ourselves in now but also this sense of prison that, um, is more of something that's developed uh is something that's developed more recently um meanwhile the long text at the end is one that sort of really engages with it and as were his as was his novel um from a to x which is set in a landscape which one, its never specified precisely where it is, but one gets the distinct sense that if it's not South America, then it's probably it's probably uh, Palestine, um, or rather, maybe just across the border in Israel. And the this sense of prison has become the overarching way in which he sees uh, the world we live in now, um, through all sorts of ways and. I haven't actually read uh, much of confabulations yet. I, I'm, in, I'm interested to see if it continues in there. Um, but the but I do like the fact that I, uh, I was talking to, to John Stepson, who's a doctor, about uh, the, the title confabulations. It's um, a apparently a medical term which combines uh, truthful statements and untruthful statements. So it's this sense of fact and fiction, again, which also kind of runs all the way through John's work.
1: That's that's really great. Um, Yasmin, uh, a pleasure to welcome you. Um, we're delighted to be talking about uh, the new anthology of writing you've edited to mark the range and influence of John Berger's work on many, many people across many different territories and many different disciplines. It's a beautifully produced book with Z books. And what's most striking on first glance is the, is the structure of the book. I wonder if you could set the scene for us about how you put uh, the, the wonderful contents together.
2: That was really difficult, I think, because, um, as you said, one of the things that we wanted from this collection was to look at the range of John's work and also its enduring relevance. And in terms of making that connect... Across, I mean, I think what we really realised was what a large influence he has. So we wanted to evoke something of that both internationally, across time, and culturally. And so when the essays came in, I think it would have been quite easy to do a quite conventional thematic structure. Um, and so that seemed almost to go against some of the poetics of John's work. So, I chose a structure that would be surprising in some ways, so there's essays that might not be in the place that you expect them to be, Um, but also to show some of that poetic. So, for example, we've got... um, and each section is a line from one of John's work, so um, Through the Lens is about his work on images and visuality, and then um the trees are in their place is that wonderful line from a seventh man which is about migration and exile um, and undefeated despair Um, and here is where we meet is about his collaborations so i think we wanted to show both the content of his work and also I think look under it and see the collaborative mechanisms that go on. So we've got work in there from some of John's translators and translation again has been another area of John's work that's, that's not as widely recognised. I mean I think the thing that I found out, you're continually surprised. Mm-hmm. So I was really surprised both at how far his work has travelled, how people have run off and played with his ideas and taken them into different contexts. And it's not just a subservient engagement. I mean, people are really thinking about those ideas and how they might change in different contexts. Um, So I hope it's quite a lively, sparky book and full of surprises.
1: It certainly is. And thank you for setting the scene for us. I mean, there are five sections, but also what's very striking within each section is that um each contribution is is given a, a single word title if you like uh, titles like memory stars conscience spirit verbs play tenderness love courage solidarity tennis now these are very interesting sort of subdivisions within already fascinating categories and i wonder how making those kind of choices um, came about with you know this kind of sense of a, of a absolutely remarkable and surprising kind of classification of the world
2: it says something about the essence of John's work actually that I think for him especially most obviously in his work on vision it's looking at the world in as both constraining but also surprising and the those one word titles in in some ways they're little constellations of a spirit or an essence um so I think Tennis is from John Christie's essay where he's talking about actually working with John. What was that like? You know, John would send him a colour and then they'd almost riff off that. Um, Stars is an essay by Vicki Bell where she's talking about John's conversation with his friend Michael Ondaatje and characters who are lying on their backs, looking at the stars, and there's something about the intensity and and a certain spirituality as well and wonder in John's work. Um, so I think that is what we've tried to evoke there. And again, there's there's something quite poetic about those. I think.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's no there's no doubt of, of that at all. What's also very interesting, of course, is is to look at the range of writers and contributors, because uh, even simply looking at a, a, a sort of uh, English language. Uh, level of engagement. We have uh, contributors as, as diverse as Ali Smith, as, as Julie Christie, as Sally Potter, John Christie, of course, you've mentioned, um, the general practitioner Gavin Francis, also a very significant writer. But crucially, what's very important is that this is a truly international collection, and really does bring into English, sometimes perhaps, and please correct me if I'm wrong, for the first time, uh, writers in relation to John's work um, that we're delighted to encounter here. So. Could you tell us a little bit about how you gathered the contributors? And if there is also, I suppose, as a supplementary question, if there's a a notable distinction in how John is perceived in different territories?
2: Yeah, well, in terms of the range of the contributions, and it is a very international book. I mean, that was very important to me, particularly that I think. Um, and Nirmal Puar talks about it in her essay as a sort of a European fraternity so it was important to move beyond that so I I tried to also commission pieces um, by women of colour particularly who are often sort of marginalised generally but who also have been engaging and working with John too so I think to to try and listen to voices that aren't necessarily the ones that you would be most familiar with was quite important and to have those juxtaposed with people who are quite established so I think it's then again about the range and the fact that actually John's work speaks out across this diversity so um, I mean that was really what so it was important to me that this, this book wouldn't just be Um, the sort of usual people you would imagine. And I also really wanted to encourage some younger scholars too. Uh, So there's work in there, for example, by Heather Verano, who's working in the context of Guatemala. And there's these engagements. I was quite interested in people who were thinking about John's work on the photograph and thinking about how the status of an image can change as it moves between the private and the public. And that was quite an endure, uh, a reoccurring theme. So thinking about new forms of activism, where the visual image, can it be something that's different from the mass production of images via capitalism? So can there be some subverting of mass production and mimicry? Um, so again, there are people who are engaging with John and taking him really seriously and saying, but what about? and how about this, um, and actually grounding that in particular political and social contexts. And
1: also, what's very striking across across the collection as a whole is, of course, the very different registers of writing that are part of this volume. There are essays that are you know, recognisable as, as essays in different traditions. There's testimonial, if you like, act of wit- acts of witness, um, personal um, encounters with John, um, senses of where he sits within a particular discipline or in a larger uh, frame of reference. Now, that all, I imagine, it all evolved naturally through your invitation. You didn't prescribe any form of writing or any kind of way of thinking about John's life and work.
2: No, I mean, the invitation was very open. And I think partly when the with the book, again, it, it is the diversity of styles. And they all seem to actually work together. They're almost like they're conversing with each other. And I think, um, particularly, I mean, there's a the essay that I really love is by Reema Hamami, which is from text exchanges with John between John and her. And some of them um, are incredibly moving. They're funny. They're sort of there's a you can see their relationship as sort of form of teasing each other, but all grounded within very different contexts of what's happening in Palestine. And then, you know, the different changing seasons in John's life in Quincy. So I think there's something very interesting in that form of writing um, where it is something both, both intimate but very embedded in a social and political context. And then there are others which are, I guess, more analytic and are taking those engagements with John's ideas and concepts.
1: It's very important obviously for the collection um, and we've spoken about this in relation to Tom's uh, collection landscapes uh, that we mark John's relationship with Palestine of course. And with Reema Hamami John um, co-translated Mahmoud Darwish's mural. They've also had other creative engagements as well. How important was it for you uh, as a collection to make a uh, a direct political statement about John's involvement. He's an art writer, of course, he's a storyteller across disciplines and genres, but he's absolutely unashamed about his form of political commitment and how
2: it might manifest. Yeah, I mean, I think the, John's political commitments are perhaps most obvious in those essay essays. Um, so there's another one by um, Tanya Nazir, um, also talking, she's done it through letters through John um, in Palestine but I think they're the most obvious of his political commitments but actually politics runs throughout his work he's always engaged with I mean even in terms of vision you know what can be seen and what's invisible Um, so I think across the book there's politics in lots of different registers and voices Um, but I think again what really surprised me was finding out how much John supports networks of people, artists, activists, um, writers, and all over the world, really. And so I think that generosity, particularly at this this moment of late capitalism, <laughs> is something that's political in itself. So actually being generous and supporting people, encouraging younger people, and sending out... He sent a lovely note out... Um, more recently in the third infotada as they were calling it and I mean that was just a beautiful note of sending Beethoven to the young people to, to say I'm with you, you know so again we have art and politics just meshing quite beautifully there.
1: I wonder if we could talk now a little bit about your own uh, sense of how John's life and work has, has influenced and informed you. You you contribute a, 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 an important and extended introduction, learning by heart, to this collection. It seems to me that title, your own essay title, suggests that um, very important tension between uh, a, an aesthetic, political, social um, inspiration and and uh, informing and, of course, a very personal meeting with the work as well. Uh, So could you give us a sense of how how John's work feeds into your own own thinking and and writing?
2: I mean, I think, obviously, from doing the book, I've seen different sides of his thinking and writing. And also, I've never met him. So I think um, the difference between Tom and Mike and I is that I know John through his work. And um, I think what has been really touching and inspiring is how we're very different. So I come from a background where the sort of art, for example, that he's been talking about, I really didn't grow up with any of that heritage and knowledge, so it's, it's relatively new to me. But there's also something quite wonderful he does in his writing on art, which opens up and that you can make connections across so many huge differences. So I think there was this sense that, and also I was steeped in, when I was writing and editing this, I was steeped in all of his writing um, from poetry to essays to to art essays. And so I think what it's really well in a very practical way it's made me think very critically about my own writing I think. and one, So I teach um, John's work, I'm a sociologist and I teach his work with students, particularly where in a couple of weeks we'll be looking at ways of seeing um, and looking at gender and the portrayal of women, and the students just love it. You know, so that ability to to say something that is difficult and complex, but to still be able for it to be accessible and to resonate with people, I think, is something that really meant a lot to me and has changed me. So I think over the years there's there's several people so I think there's John's part of an intellectual trajectory and in a movement but I think that we've lost something very important in terms of how he manages to bring together these different disciplines and knowledges really.
1: Now one of the very particular um, shared encounters you have had uh, creatively and intellectually of course is around the idea of migration, your own book from 2013, Death and the Migrant and we think of John's book A Seventh Man about Uh, Turkish migration into Germany particularly in the 70s Um, was that a book that that you grew up alongside was it a book you came to later wonder how how, wondering how that sits in in your sort of constellation of 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 informants from John's work
2: it's really interesting because my family migrated to London from Sri Lanka at the same time John migrated out (laughs) so I've been very interested in those kind of directions those Temporal spatial sort of trajectories of difference really and so I mean there's things that I've been grappling with so I think if you have a lot of cultural capital it's quite easy to make the gesture to divest yourself from it but you have to be secure in that so the movement away from London and you know what was happening politically um, for me and in terms of what migration opened up for my family was lots of opportunities really. So I'm particularly struck by what was happening around that time and the differences in different migration trajectories. But I mean, A Seventh Man, I came to relatively late, I think. Um, And that is such a beautiful book because it does interweave. So you have the statistics, you have the political analysis about what's happening and then the poetry and Jean Moore's images. Um, so I think, again, it's all of that spoke to me and Amrit and Chandon, um, who, who instigated both the essays book and the poetry, he came across A Seventh Man when he was an undocumented worker in Germany and, again, it was that difference, so he couldn't be more different in a way than John Berger, but there was that connection. Um, and people often say this so that John's writing speaks to them directly, as an indi- you know as that person and as an individual at that time. So I think his his relationship with migration is interesting and complicated. <laughs> um, and I particularly think at this this moment in time when we're witnessing a different type of uh, exile. Now, in terms of what's called the refugee crisis. You know, and again, John's touched on that through his essay on um, Charlie Chaplin as well, just briefly. But I think what's really important about A Seventh Man is that it was at that time in the 1970s, but there's so much of it in terms of the personal experience of loss, of ambivalence, of dreams, of nightmares that continues to resonate.
1: Uh, many, many thanks. Just as we move to a close, um, I wonder if I could ask you, if you were talking about John's work, perhaps to students, perhaps to audiences that you will have for the launch of this book and and other related events, if you were asked to to give one uh, one sense of of the quality and importance of John's work, what might that be?
2: I'd I actually just I think I'd just use the title of one of his books, which is another way of telling. And I think that's what he does. He tells, you know, he's, it's a cliche that he identifies himself as a storyteller. And of course, he is a a wonderful storyteller, but I think it's the fact that he searches for and is attentive to very hidden and marginalized stories. Um, And he manages to tell them in ways, I think, that both touch people, so they're moved by them, but they also connect with um, political contexts. So I think what he's done is really develop a new form of telling stories.
1: Well, that's tremendous and, and, and provides a wonderful segue, if you like, into... Uh, closing comments about this particular book because your own fellow Sri Lankan writer Michael Andarce has said that the essays in this collection speak to the great range of John Berger's writing that so often reveals a crucial and often unspoken history of our times. But we should also bear in mind the endorsement uh, on the cover alongside Michael's by Arundhati Roy. John Berger has made the world a better place to live in. I do not say this lightly. These essays tell us how he succeeded in that task so for bringing them together so wonderfully. Many thanks, Yasmin. It's a real pleasure now to welcome Mike Dibb, uh, claimed and award-winning film and television essayist. And and Mike, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's interesting that both our fellow uh, correspondents, uh, conversationalists today, uh, Tom and Yasmin, have mentioned ways of seeing. Uh, how could they not, in a way? Such a crucial text, both uh, on television screens and, of course, on the page. Uh, and not out of print now for nearly five decades. An extraordinary testament to uh, both collaboration, uh, yourself, John, and others we'll talk about shortly, and also to that crucial meeting place between art and politics, uh, creative work and society that has marked John's work throughout his his writing uh, life and also his life as a person in the world. I wonder if you could set the scene for us just briefly about how that came about.
3: Well, I think the title ways of seeing might even be me, mine. I think I, I think we were trying to think what to call it, and I think uh, in that conversation, I suggested ways of seeing, and which stuck. Uh, but how it actually came about is I I met John earlier in nineteen sixty nine. Uh, I met him, of course, as a writer much earlier than that, but uh, and the first conversation we had was about. Um, Brecht because I loved the translation of the poems he'd done with Anya Bostock Anya, his wife then and uh, we talked about Brecht and we it never came to anything but we got to know each other and made friends and then uh, I was a very junior member of the Music and Arts Department and Stephen Hurst who was the head of it, Music and Arts Department, wrote to John Suggesting that he might like to make a short series on any subject of his choice. Uh, Stephen might have been thinking it as a riposte to civilization. but I don't think John saw a single episode of civilization. He's out there in Geneva and wasn't interested. He knew Kenneth Clark, of course, and they had some kind of relationship before. But uh, the idea of a response to civilization wasn't in our minds, I don't think it was in John's mind. And John came up with a proposal, which, if, and I, I wish I still had that first document, but it was the idea of taking an archetypal European painting and spinning a half-hour film out of issues and subjects around that. And as soon as we started talking, that didn't seem to be quite hold. And he didn't; he was offered the series. He didn't have to write anything to suggest what he should do. He just said, "Do what you like." And then. When we really started talking, the work of art and the age of mechanical reproduction had just been translated, and John said, "I think that's what we should both read and think about." And John Drummond, who was the executive producer of the series, uh, immediately saw that there was a kind of rapport between John and myself, and that although I was only supposedly designated as research from the series, with the possibility of directing one half-hour thing. I'd never directed anything beyond a sort of quarter of an hour films about this and that. Uh, but such was the trust that could generate, be generated at that moment, that John left us to think about what it should be. And so it just grew from that. And John came over um, and he used to stay with his mother and father in Harlem Street. And I'd go over and we'd talk about things and and then John would go away and write stuff, and I'd go away and look at images and think about other dimensions of things. And we arrived at three programmes, that the first was going to be an attempt to take the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, which is a pretty dense text, and try and find a playful, accessible way of making those ideas alive. Uh, then he just completed the novel G, which is why he was free to do the series because that had preoccupied him for the previous period very intensely. But he'd finished that. And then, of course, there were a lot of ideas in that about the relationship of the male gaze and women. And so we, the second film, which is about the representation of the uh, nude in European painting and the male gaze and the objectification of women, which that uh, entailed, became the subject of the second film. And then there was one essay which he'd written before, which I think in several forms, but one of the main forms, I think there's a, is it a Fine or Thames and Hudson uh, themes and subjects in European painting? And John had written an introduction. And that introduction became the substance of the essay on European oil painting, which we then changed a lot. And when we began the series, believe it or not, we didn't know what the fourth film was going to be about. Uh, We were even talking to uh, the Red Ladder Theatre Company, which is how I first met Chris Lawrence, uh, who I subsequently collaborated with on Once Upon a Time. Um, And uh, we were thinking of trying to do something on the national heritage, the idea of this national heritage, which of course was a history of private ownership, which is then glossed over and suggested that it's our heritage, when it clearly was the heritage of extremely wealthy people. And there was an awful lot of obfuscation about the true history of that and the meaning of that. The sort of thing which Raymond Williams subsequently in the country and the city brought out beautifully. But that didn't seem to work. We weren't convinced of that. And then John was going to have, he went to have supper, I think, with Hugh Weldon one Sunday. And he knew Hugh Weldon pretty well because John, prior to Ways of Seeing, had done a number of very interesting films for Monitor directed mostly by Michael Gill, who was one of the co-producers of Civilization. And another film, which was subsequently wiped because it was done in studio and therefore not kept, was directed by Peter Montagnon. So the two directors who he'd worked with most closely, prior to me, had co-produced Civilization with Kenneth Clark. But on the way to Richmond to see Hugh, He was in the tube, and he'd been looking around, standing in the station, and he'd suddenly thought about the iconography in European painting suddenly turning up in the iconography of advertising around him. And we began to think about colour photography, rendering objects desirable and tangible in the way that oil painting had rendered textures of things and clothes and objects and spaces in European painting. So he rang me up on the Monday morning and said, Mike, I think we have got an idea. Should we do the last film about advertising? And so that's how the fourth film developed. And I suppose the fourth film, in that sense, was the most original of all, because it opened up a whole field which has subsequently been followed up by many other people. But that, I think, was what's happened with the whole series, is that it, uh, in the book, we say, to be continued by others. And... In a sense what I think the book did and what was so exciting about it and what the films did was just open up a possibility of thought and and about whole areas of visual representation which hadn't just been thought about in that way. But I think we managed to find an accessible way of doing it and I suppose one of the great advantages you have when you work with John is you have an amazing face. And uh, rather like Miles Davis, you can't take a bad photograph of John, (laughs) you know, even if he's angry or worried or anxious or smiling or whatever. It always seems to be a wonderfully graphic visual expression of whatever emotion it is. And also he has this extraordinary voice. And that was fantastic for me as a filmmaker because in a way it was like some safety net. You know, as long as his voice and thoughts and, and the way he writes was there, You could play around on that, you could decorate the tree in all sorts of other visual ways. And so it was an exciting journey we both set off on, not really knowing where we were going to go, but given complete freedom to get there. And I think it actually represents the essence of collaboration, which is what I love, is that you can argue with John and it can be quite a tense thing, you know, if you disagree with John and he, uh, it's not comfortable. Um, but as long as you're pointing the same direction and your destiny is shared, you can deal with all that because you're always moving towards something creatively and you both are respectful of the other enough to know that the other person is just making, not a point to make a point, but possibly because, uh, the I, I, well, put it this way, I think, that John could say something and you think, well, that's ridiculous, that's... But in the saying of it, you come to a third thought, which actually is better than the first thoughts either of you had. And that's what's so fantastic about collaborating with John. He sort of raises the the bar of the conversation. Mm. So you you leave a half thought, each of you might have, and you come to a much better one as a shared thought. Um,
1: you, you paint a portrait of, of a BBC and of a culture and of a time... Uh, that is very different to the one we have now and also of the way that creativity itself works through conjunction through coincidence through chance through synchronicity and what we take for granted after the event as being somehow inevitable is anything but in in the process and the production so many many thanks for that we could clearly talk much more about ways of seeing but one of the the key facts of the program is that uh, the the originating impulse if you like benjamin's work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction allowed you to source many of the images of, of art history from postcards and such like, which has made the series ironically unclearable in contemporary um, intellectual property terms. And therefore, it's never appeared on VHS or DVD through the BBC, while many other series have, of course. But perhaps that's, that's um, as it should be.
3: Uh, in connection suggested... with that, I mean, the other thing, of course, is the irony of advertising which comes absolutely unbidden into our lives, but actually advertisers, you have to ask for permission to use their um, images. And you think, this is ridiculous. I mean, here are these images which infest your whole visual existence on every form of transport or in every TV programme you watch. And then this is protected as, 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 as something you cannot comment on.
1: It's a crucial point, and and you could directly challenge that in the first edition uh, of the Penguin book, uh, subsequently published, where you, I, b- I believe, made that first
3: edition copyright free. Yes, we didn't know how he squeezed it through, but we said, but it actually says the text of this book is not copyright, uh, and we couldn't, of course, claim copyright over no. all the images, which although the 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 we we hardly pay anything for the reproduction rights because. The National Gallery, for instance, thought that these images were so badly reproduced they couldn't deserve to be paid for such oh, <laughs> awful yes. representations of their painting. But but this is something that that runs through obviously John's work
1: generally. He wants to make books accessible. This is a, a book that came out in paperback um, in uh, Tom Overton's edition uh, of John's art writing portraits. The books are, the images are produced in black and white, although they of course are uh, the, almost all of them are in, originally in colour. It's about making the work accessible open um, available uh, and the book is so crucial to the ways of seeing project which of course can be viewed on YouTube and we urged those listeners who haven't uh, seen it to find it uh, and to fill out their the encounter of it themselves um, but the book uh, is also a, a collaboration and I wonder if you could give us a sense of how the other members of the team worked on the book
3: well the book could not have existed if the TV series hadn't because it- existed so there were already pre-existing all these images I'd collected and and in a sense that was one of the divisions of labour you know when John for instance in the last film we talked about advertising we'd talk about the various dreams of advertising things like that and John would go away and write these different dreams I would go everywhere he went in London every time I noticed a shop window or an advertisement I'd jot it down and there wasn't little cameras you had to sort of accumulate enough images to make it worth going out with a film crew to film them. And I went through every magazine. Every time I bought a magazine, I was just combing through to look things. So there's that activity going on. Um, And that meant that we had before the book this great bank of images. John wanted to bring in, and Chris Fox had been a researcher and collaborator on the thing and helped me in, in sorting through those images and thinking about European paintings which might link to them and things like that. So we had that existing. Uh, Richard Hollis, a uh, designer, who actually I'd known before at a personal level because he used to live near me and I'd known him before, but Richard had, was the uh, designer of New Society and had designed the cover of G, for instance. So Richard came on board, and then John wanted to bring uh, Sven Blomberg, his painter friend who lived in Lacoste, uh, and he'd known for years and years. And, uh, and we were given a room near Broadcasting House and we just spent, we all came together, and we spent, was it two or three weeks? just there all together putting all this book together and Sven went off on his little own bender with his little visual essays his his um and Sven was quite complicated because i remember when richard and i we when we were after this period then it became down to richard and myself to really put a lot of work into bringing all this work into the book and richard of course was a brilliant uh, designer Uh, But I remember when we phoned, we couldn't really fit. We had too many images for one of Sven's little essays, which I'm not quite sure what they quite mean, but somehow they add to the book in a rather interesting way. They give a sort of space for reflection about images and the relationship of images, though each one had a kind of meaning for Sven, which was very much more intense and focused, than it was quite clear for us, I think, often. Um, And I remember... Uh, phoning Sven, saying, look, uh, it doesn't really, we, we, we've got to reduce the thing by two pages, so we might have to lose these images. And he'd get into a complete fury about how one could possibly uh, misinterpret his visual essay in such a vulgar way. So there were sort of moments of stress in that whole process. But it was a thing which, which we just came together, rather than the same way that John and I had come together for the film, uh, to just expand it to 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 make the book. And the intention of the book was to try and make the cheapest art book uh, ever um, and reverse all uh, the, the, the essential things, I think, were to make the typeface bold so it didn't look like the typeface normally used in art books and to make the images appear where they were linked directly to the text, which meant, of course, you diminished them in size and often things, but... So they were linked into an argument in a way which has just not happened um, in art books before, where the images were beautifully reproduced in little sections, but were linked directly to the text. Uh, and so it was very exciting. So it was like sort of remaking the film by making a book, which was kind of trying to remake the way in which a book might be made. And
1: like the like the television series, it's had... Uh an incalculable uh, influence across the world and across many different disciplines and for many, many uh, different people in, in all walks of life. Uh, thank you so much for setting that up for us. We, I want to talk sh- uh, very very shortly about your other work with John, but it's very interesting to note how collaboration is, has been so central, of course, to, to, the, to the project uh, you just described, crucially how the relationship between art and society is constantly in, in a kind of dialectic dialogue, uh, and also, most importantly, I suppose, about the space for the reader and the viewer in these projects, that there is a, an explicit desire to inc- include uh, those who encounter the work um, alongside the production of the work, I think, which is is very striking. Um, it's wonderful you're with us today because, of course, we are uh, wanting to show how John's work has spread beyond the page, of course, into screen-based media and onto stage and radio and, and other forms as well. Um, but as I've said, you, this is not the only project you've worked on with John. You're very close friends now for nearly 50 years. Um, and we, we've got time probably to focus on two more pieces uh, in that ongoing um, dialogue. I'd like to talk a little bit about the the film of Pig Earth and also about your series on time made with Chris Rawlins. So if we come to Pig Earth, this is the first volume in book form of John's trilogy Into Their labors. And what was it about that particular project that you felt would have a, a televisual version, in this way, moving from book to screen?
3: Well, I think it came from John, who John Content and saying, I'd like to try and make a film in Pig Earth. Because what you have to understand uh, is one really important thing, is that after Ways of Seeing came Seventh Man. And John and I wanted to make a film based on that book. It was going to be called "Did You Come by Photograph or Train," and uh, it was resisted by uh, the head of features group, who said it was far too political. It was a a film that should be made for Panorama, and it couldn't be possibly made in the arts department. And and John and it was provoked a terrible argument, and John was completely disgusted and said, "I never want to work for the BBC again." Uh, I was in the middle of it as a staff employee, very, very complicated um, place, uh, politically with a small p. And uh, so J- John refused to do anything more for the BBC, uh, which was awful for me because I'd, we'd got quite a long way sort of doing work on this thing. And indeed, we could have done it, I think, because right at the last moment... Hugh Weldon heard about it. And Hugh Weldon was then director of television and an old friend of John, said, this is ridiculous. John, please ignore this, uh, please come and do it. But John um, was so uh, incensed, he said, no, I won't. Um, so that fell through. So for several years, there was no point in contacting John because John had made a resolution not to work with the BBC, which suggests also that the BBC wasn't always that wonderful place where you could do anything you liked. And I hugely regret that now when I think about it, because, of course, that was so prescient of what's happening now. And then subsequently, when five years ago, the BBC refused to let John and me make another film, our last film together, which would have actually been called Seeing Through Walls and been a continuation of Seventh Man and be a series of films within a film reflecting on the world we now have. And I always regret that really those two films would have been hugely important, but they were the two things that didn't happen. Uh, how does this relate to what you have said? Except uh, it? it relates directly
1: in the sense that it was uh, setting up for us how Pig Earth came about.
3: Ah, uh, So yes, how Pig Earth. So then John was writing and um, moved to Cancy. He'd broken up with Anya, he'd moved with Beverly to Cancy. Uh And it was he who suggested that it might be possible to do a film of Pig Earth. So that, and, and that became easy because um, uh, I think it was Leslie McGarkey was, was editing Omnibus, Leslie, who I knew, a wonderful filmmaker, uh, and I liked him very much, and he said, no, no that'd be a good idea, let's do it. And, and so an exhibition was set up. Lisa Opinionese was running the, That dimension of the ICA at the time, so we filmed the whole thing at the ICA. But the other important thing was uh, I wanted to sort of create another sort of level, uh, visual level, to frame these still photographs. So I uh, commissioned Jean Moore to go with a little eight millimetre film camera and go to film little images around. The themes and, and subject matter, but filming it on eight millimeter film, which gave it that sort of flickery other thing, but also produced another visual space, into which the, um, is the images could sit. Uh, and then the other thing was music, and I found a, a French accordionist in in um, in London, and we met, and I said, I want you to create, I want something which is like a French accordion but then sustained these notes and I had this funny experience with this French accordionist who couldn't understand why I wanted him to play little themes I said, how could you possibly want me to sustain this note forever It's was getting so completely tedious and then I'd wave to him and then I'd ask him to do another little phrase I'd say, hold 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 and that produced a sort of lovely aural Space for the film so that was the only thing and then John came over and 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 um, we edited the text a bit and edited it with um, Di Vaughan uh, and but of course we didn't have enough really to sustain the whole film. so then John said, well I think we ought to actually have a, the best way to complete the 50minute. Length that Omnibus had to be would be to uh, contact Theodore Shannin, uh, who has written more on peasant experience than anyone else. I think he was was he in, working in Manchester, and so we set up this conversation with John and Theodore Shannin, which then completed the 50-minute length of the Omnibus program. So it, it so it was a way of John and me coming together on a subject that he wanted to make a film about and which was acceptable to the BBC to make a film about. Though the idea on BBC One containing Pig Earth now uh, with a a 20-minute conversation in rather, you know, this heavily accented uh, voice of Theodore Shannon is unthinkable.
1: It is unthinkable. And again, many thanks for setting the scene for us with both uh, the Pig Earth project and also, of course, very poignantly, the films that that didn't... uh, Find realization again. I guess it's the what ifs of 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 collaboration that um, speak as much about the the trust and the relationship that you have with John as uh, as those which are um, finally made. Um, we've been talking about fitting to time slots for omnibus and such like. I'm aware that time now is is uh, slightly against us, but I would like to make that subject centre stage now for the last part of the conversation with you, Mike, because you moved to Channel 4 for the next project we're going to discuss, which is uh, About Time, made with Chris Rawlins. And in, this is also a, a, a series that became a book as well. But uh, it looks fully at the range of, of the human and uh, world experience of time. But we just want to focus, if we could, just very briefly on the episode with John, um, Once Upon a Time. And this brings us neatly back to how we started this podcast, talking about storytelling, storytelling, John, known of course himself, uh, declaring as such, but also uh, observed by others as as a storyteller across media, disciplines, and forms. And in that, he 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 really makes central the idea of of the 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 promise, the space, the kind of um, the 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 welcome of a story. And w- what is your sense now, looking back on that on that episode of of what it meant for John to to bring that into a, a television space?
3: I think it's actually a surprise as how well it came out in a way. It, I, I now think of it as the film I most value of the films I made with John because it has something about it which is very special. But uh, we tried to do a series about time for the BBC and it was rejected, which is why I then sent it to um, Jeremy Isaacs and Michael Cousteau and they said, we'll make it for us, which has detonated my move from the BBC if the BBC had accepted it, I might have stayed there to do it. Uh, but what was also remarkable is that John had a sort of ambivalence about things often. And, and um, he knew that the series depended, in a sense, on him being part of it. But he we, we didn't really want to be part of all of it. And we didn't quite know how to make him a part of all of it anyway. Um, so we decided to separate it up into these separate films in which each has a completely distinctive form and, and content, and just make the first film with John. Uh, when we arrived, you can see, with the film crew and everything, John hadn't written a word. Uh, so, in a way, we started from scratch, which wasn't meaning that he was indifferent, but he hadn't done anything about it. Uh, and the whole intention was to make a series of uh, tell a series of stories which all had an idea of time in them. It could be a poem or it could be a, a traditional story. It could be the story of the tortoise and the hare or it could be a story about Beethoven going deaf. Or, and, and what happened was, uh, in the intensity of the shortage of time, Chris and John tended to get together and work on all these texts. So they worked incredibly intensely. Chris is a very good writer himself. And, uh, and I and the film crew went out around Cassie and the surroundings to build a complete brand tub of images, which we didn't know how they were going to be used, but were all the, 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 I, the discipline of the film was that it was all going to be filmed in and around that and away from images like specific images of Rembrandt or photographs of, of particular photographers that all the images had to be created from either within the house or from the surrounding town and fields and streams. And I think what's wonderful about the film is how well it came together because of that. Uh, So each little story, we had to choose a different place where John was going to tell the story, whether it was going to be in the barn, whether it was going to be behind his desk, whether it was going to be by a fire, and then uh, connect each of the stories and each of the sections to these different spaces. And then trying to find the images from around which would actually match these stories, which meant immediately you were moving into the world of metaphor, and which is the filmically so perfect that actually if, it, the films, if you if illustrate things literally, it's very banal. But if you illustrate them metaphorically, it can be incredibly poetic and, and, and resonant. And I think that's one of the most important things. So I think the whole film works at a personal level, because John speaks very personally about the death of his father, or the wonderful poem he wrote on Moato or Orlando Letelli, um, and drawing Beverly, and we have this lovely thing about, you know, one of the best essays I think he ever wrote, which was on drawing that his father after his father had died, which I think is actually the best short essay on drawing anyone could ever read. I think it's fantastic. Um, So the reason why I love Once Upon a Time particularly is I think it embodies in a single film the way in which some of the best work happens because you can actually take chances and you are with an extraordinarily sympathetic team of a cameraman you feel completely happy with, somebody who... Uh, Chris Rollins I was close to, John, oh, I love uh, Dave Vaughan, a most wonderful editor. So it's really a real collaboration of friendship and I think it testifies to, if I had to think of a single film which represented the kind of warmth I feel to the importance of collaboration and to authorship of a film being not singular but plural, I think that film perfectly exemplifies it.
1: Thank you so much, Mike. Sadly, we are out of time, but it's wonderful to end with such a project which brings together, I think, all the concerns that we've talked about today across our three wonderful conversationalists and, and t- to place it back where John has made so much great work that has informed, inspired and influenced us all. And and the idea of the shared storytelling of John's life and work and his abiding concerns sum- summarised and caught in your fascinating uh, telling of how work is made creatively and collaboratively together is is very striking. So many Many thanks for that. And it's great to be able to announce that the two later film works with John that Mike made, uh, Pig Earth and Once Upon a Time, will be shown at the London Review Bookshop on the 17th of November um, in uh, the London Review Bookshop screen series. So do, if you listen to this in advance, find your way to that particular site on that particular day. There will be many events uh, celebrating the books that we've been talking about today, Landscapes, edited by Tom Overton, and Yasmin's collection, A Jar of Wildflowers. Do keep an eye on the Zed Books, Verso Books websites uh, for details of those. Uh, Of course, John is the uh, author of the month at the London Review Bookshop, and the five books that I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, podcast will be available there, of course, throughout the month, along with two other new publications, John's reading of a Platinoff short story with accompanying CD, and also, perhaps very poignantly, um, a collection of portraits of John across 50 years uh, by John Moore, a single photographer and a single portrait subject, perhaps unparalleled in that duration in the history of photography who knows, but published by occasional press in Ireland will also be available to buy alongside dozens of other publications of course by John and his collaborators so it just remains for me to thank uh, our wonderful conversationalists as I've said today Tom, Yasmin and Mike, many thanks to Anthony for putting this programme together to Z Books, to Versa Books and to everyone at the London Review Bookshop Uh, We all send the warmest happy birthday to John on the occasion of his 90th birthday, this 5th of November, and we thank you very much indeed for listening.